Welcome to Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome to the newest episode of the Untitled Investment Talk. Today with a very special guest and I think the hottest topic of the hour. Once again, with me here is my esteemed colleague, Carl Michael. Carl Michael, thanks for being here. Yes, hi, Simon. Pleasure to be with you here again. The very special guest of honor today is uh, Victor van Wachter. I think by now quite well known in the podcast scene, blockchain and especially DeFi researcher. And um, he's currently doing his PhD on DeFi. Victor, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you very much, Simon, for the invitation and also Carl Michael for the co-hosting. So, Victor, maybe we can start with um, you giving an overview to our listeners. What really brought you into the blockchain space? Um, what was the initial draw? And since when are you really deeply involved and actively engaged in DeFi itself? So, for me, blockchain and uh, crypto in general was a pretty natural field to be drawn towards because I have an academic background in computer science and finance, which is uh, super fitting for this area. And I first engaged with Bitcoin and also with Ethereum in 2016. The first week I dived into this rabbit hole was during the DAO hack. So also a very uh, famous week in 2016. And then in, <laughs> then in uh, 2018, I started working professionally in the cryptocurrency industry, uh, basically working as a product manager and product engineer for a cryptocurrency exchange where we provided trading services and custody services um, for crypto assets. In DeFi in particular, I dived in, in 2019 when the first big applications like Maker and like Synthetic went to mainnet. And I was immediately drawn towards for a lot of reasons. And due to this huge passion, I also started my academic PhD in beginning 2020. So one year through roughly through my PhD in computer science. Now, maybe on this topic, since I think for many of us in the, let's say, crypto industry, uh, a lot of the draw is uh, of professional nature and maybe um, maybe not, maybe also of quite a capitalist and opportunist nature, I think, because it's so naturally interwoven between, as you said, computer sciences and finance. And what has really been the draw to get in really deep into the topic from academic standpoint for you personally? I definitely have to highlight what you just said, that the interdisciplinarity of blockchain in practice, but also in research is like unparalleled. You have to dive into computer science, you have to dive into economics, game theory, and also into financial topics and a lot of political topics, regulatory topics. So uh, this interdisciplinarity itself is for me very, very uh, interesting and rewarding. For decentralized finance in particular, we have blockchain technology, which is by now also for investors, very well known with the Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now in decentralized finance, we make full use of this open trusted database of this blockchain technology and add new concepts, interesting academic concepts to it. For example, one core concept of decentralized finance is composability. So one is able to compose crypto assets in an yeah, infinite manner. We have this notion of automated market maker, which are new trading 
or market designs where you can trade crypto assets against each other. And we have a lot of other interesting concepts brought to us by the blockchain technology, which makes research so rewarding, I would say. Well, interesting, I think, is probably the understatement of the year, but the year is still quite fresh. So last year has definitely been the summer of DeFi. We've seen small projects, initially small projects, rise to billions and billions of locked value. We've seen, well, the overall DeFi space to be around 40 billion US dollars in total values locked right now, which is, of course, pretty still pretty hard to believe sometimes when we look at the numbers where like two years ago, there was pretty much nothing there. We've seen about 3 million ETH being staked already uh, for Ethereum 2.0. We see liquidity pools. We see lending, staking, as you said. We see things like Badger and Cream and Curve and Aave and all of those projects really get into the headlights of, of crypto. And I think it's about time to really push deeper into what's behind it, maybe also what is still some skepticism concerning the entire DeFi movement. I'm not even willing to call it a hype yet because I think we're still far off from DeFi reaching levels of uh, popularity as we saw, for example, with the ICO hype uh, just a few years ago. I think we're still quite far off also because, of, of course, the technical entry barriers that were a lot lower for ICOs back then. So I think it's good if we first build a little bit of common ground for this talk. Yes, and I think both of you went already quite deeply, I would say, in specific topics like automatic market making. You mentioned some certain topics, Simon, here. But Victor, maybe let's go one step back and to the basis. Can you describe in a few words, maybe two sentences, what is landing? What is staking and what is market making, which are three basic core DeFi services, which everybody is currently talking about and a lot of people are already using. Can you give us an explanation in layman's term here? Sure. So I would even go one step back. And when you take a look on the development of DeFi, we are currently in a state where there are a lot of services, financial services, mimicking traditional financial services. So that is certainly a category I would put lending inside as well as market making. And we have, on the other hand, also DeFi services, which are totally new due to the specifics, technical or economical of, of blockchain. So lending, as I said, mimics the traditional borrowing and lending space. And in, in the traditional finance world, borrowing and lending is, is huge. So someone with an excess of capital can basically provide this capital to a borrower and gets for this an interest payment and a borrower can borrow this capital and pays an interest payment. On DeFi, the interest payment itself is calculated automatically with the smart contracts, which is a building block of, of blockchain. Market making is kind of similar. A investor or actor with an excess of capital can provide liquidity, can provide uh, capital to markets in the hope of return, of higher return um, in the future due to trading fees. So people are trading on these markets and the liquidity provider, the market maker gets a share of his fees. Staking is one of the services which is more or less new or innovative in blockchain technology. 
staking can be used in two terms. Like the one is um, with staking, you provide capital as a security, as a collateral to the network. And with this collateral, with this security, the network stays alive or validates a certain state. Often staking, so it's more these like you can compare to traditional financial voting or stakeholder rights. Staking is, is connected to, to governance and yeah, voting, so to say. And of course, for your work and so on, you get also a little bit of yield for your staking. Okay, I think that's a very brief and excellent explanation of the key DeFi services. But let's look at it from the user's perspective and, and take an individual DeFi investor here, maybe not the institutional at that point of time, because it's, uh, I think, not this much an institutional space right now. What's in for the individual investors? What are the big value proposition next to that you can use services in, in crypto, which can use in the fired world already, or that you have a certain governance mechanism in, like staking? which is specific to crypto. What are the big value drivers in your opinion? Why are so many people running after these services? And especially, why did they start to boom so much in the last six months? Yeah, so I could say, like, I'm definitely a little bit biased, so always, always question it. But DeFi itself, just on an, a big picture, is the onboarding is instant, so you can start using financial services such as lending, such as market making, such as staking in an instant. Yes, the educational barriers are, are high, but technically you can use it instant and global. So even a, a Chinese citizen can nowadays buy a South African stock or like there are multiple examples that it is truly global and unrestricted. And let me give an example. Just last year, Synthetics, one of the biggest protocols in the decentralized finance ecosystem, launched an asset, crypto asset, which is mimicking the Tesla stock price. And it is awesome because the Tesla stock price can now be traded on the blockchain 24 hours, seven days a week, the full year without any trading hours. And it is packed to the price of Tesla shares itself and can further be used. And this is one uh, thing what I mentioned before, these composability aspects of decentralized finance. This Tesla stock can now be used, for example, as collateral for your next loan or as liquidity for the Tesla stock market. So you can compose and compose and reuse these services as you want in a open, permissionless and transparent fashion, which is pretty amazing. That's a great example with Tesla. And we can spin this story further. It's kind of during the non-trading hours at the traditional exchanges, when on the other hand side, the Tesla on crypto is traded, it provides signals over the weekend for how the price of Tesla will evolve on traditional exchanges. So it could be a kind of very interesting looping or circle or a mechanism. I think there is also a reason why people are so interested in decentralized finance is that they can really increase their personal assets, right? And let's take maybe one example. If we'll take crypto lending and compare the lending rates and even the lending rates for stable coins who are packed to fiat currencies, the yields are much higher than with traditional fiat fixed income products where I mean, the interest rates are closer to zero, sometimes even negative. 
my, you are lucky if you get uh, 1%, at least on a government bond. Why are the, the yields for these crypto assets so much higher than in the traditional fixed income market? Do you have an explanation for this? Yeah, what's back to the what you just said with the yield on, on fixed income products. One very nice example as well here is if you go to the compound protocol, which is a protocol borrowing and lending, one prime example, you even as a user with a very nice experience, you see when you provide an asset, you see how the interest payment is paid out every 15 seconds. So it's also a very rewarding and nice experience, which is uncompared to, to traditional finance. So back to your original question, why are they higher? So for example, on Compound, this protocol, fiat packed yeah, crypto asset, for example, USDC or USDT or DAI, all are US dollar um, crypto assets. You get between 8 to 15% on a US dollar product. Yeah, that's certainly a lot higher than what we are used to in a zero percent interest rate economic environment. I would say that some part is due to this technical risk. So there exists technical risk in all these protocols and all this interaction between the protocols. There is also a form of innovation risks or like innovation premium because decentralized finance is two to three years old and quite novel to, to certain people. So there is innovation barriers, but nevertheless, besides all this increased technical risk, which you get in a premium or increased entry barriers, which you get a premium, I even would say that in the long run, yields on stable assets or fixed incomes assets in decentralized finance are higher than yields in the traditional financial world due to the fact that in decentralized finance, you can reuse your asset more often. Like you can, as I uh, explained before, you can compose it into another asset um, or use it as a collateral for your loan. So, and traditionally, yeah, reusability from financial assets increases the yield, but of course also bears risks, which we have seen 2007 with the financial crisis. So the more often an asset is wrapped and reused, the higher also the risks, economic and technological. Okay, so that is a good explanation of a risk premium. I think we come to uh, DeFi risk later on. Let me ask you one more specific question. Let's say we are in DeFi lending, and if we compare the lending rates for a stablecoin product like uh, Tether or USDC with the lending rates for Bitcoin as collateral, then we see that for the stablecoins, you get a higher interest rate. Which is quite interesting because USDC stablecoins are more stable. I mean, they are not as volatile as other assets. They are not as risky as Bitcoin. How come that the yields are higher for these stablecoin products compared to Bitcoin or, or Ethereum as a collateral? So certainly the market yet is in the state not fully efficient, as efficient as traditional financial markets. But if you take a look on the lending protocols, the major reason the stable asset has a higher yield, which, as you said, counterintuitive, is that demand for stable coins borrowing is higher than for Ether or for Bitcoin assets. So I, I said before that the interest rate which the lender receives and the borrower pays is calculated algorithmically with smart contracts. And the demand for borrowing in stable coins is, is higher, I think, 
on, on Aave, I took a look before the show, the demand for the main stable coins was 90%. So 90% of the available capital has been borrowed by individuals. And this drives the, the interest rate the borrower pays. So it's a simple supply and demand for the yield. I think that uh, makes a lot of sense, but still in the very early days. I mean, one of the big factors here that we need to look at is also the increase in value lock, like I alluded to it earlier, but simply since the beginning of this year, now it's mid-February, we've seen a tripling of assets uh, value locked in DeFi. And I think many of the crazy return rates and crazy staking and lending return rates that we see are at least in part uh, due to the strong increase in Ethereum prices. So of course, if Ethereum triples in value all of a sudden, Assets, let's say projects where everything is dealt with in Ethereum also easily triple in value. So what's your view on um, the actual increase in value locked in DeFi? Is it mostly due to Ethereum price increase? Of course, there's like a back and forth between those two things, but what's your view on this topic? So it's, def it's definitely attached the one to the other. The ETH price performed uh, in 2020 very well, I think tripled or quadrupled. But regardless, the total value locked in 2020 within these DeFi protocols moved from 1 billion at the beginning in the year. I, I remember I was on a conference before um, COVID happened and we celebrated with a, with a drink, we celebrated the 1 billion total value locked in February 2020. And I just checked as well some minutes ago, the total value locked at the end of 2020 has been 16 billion US dollars, so 16x within one year. And right now in February, it's already 35 billion, so 35x. And this massive increase cannot uh, only explain with the ETH price, in my opinion. The, the metric itself, total value locked or asset under management within this DeFi ecosystem is uh, one of the prime metrics people take a look and the, the growth is, is definitely impressive. But I would also uh, take a look on the other metrics you just raised in the beginning of our intro, like the daily active users on the Ethereum blockchain surpassed 500,000 daily active users. The total amount of transactions within Ethereum and a subset of the DeFi ecosystem is like 1.5 million transactions a day. So the trading volume on these decentralized exchanges is on average in, in 2021, 1 billion on Uniswap, for example. So each, just each metric you are taking leads to, to massive excitement and massive growth. Most definitely. And I think you already cut a very nice arc towards my Next question here, since we see this massive increase in transaction volume, of course, we cannot ignore the, let's call it maybe luxury problem of very high gas prices. Um, at the moment, I think for many private users, it's often the question if it's actually worth it to engage with smart contracts, to engage with DeFi on Ethereum as gas prices are so high and often only makes sense if you're moving 5,000, 10,000, maybe 20,000 US dollars worth or worth of assets, otherwise it being eaten up by, by transaction fees. So do you think this is really, as I said, maybe a luxury problem that we only have because due to the success uh, and maybe non-exclusively, could this break the neck of ETH-based DeFi? Will we see a shift away until we see a breakthrough 
towards other blockchains or is ETH just too dominant? Is it like the one place to be? Is it like the successful club that everyone wants to get into and you can't get in? So, but it's not an alternative to go into the kebab shop next door that's completely <laughs> empty. So how do you see this? Certainly, these high gas prices or high transaction prices for playing in DeFi or investing in DeFi um, is a double-edged sword because on the one side, one of the fundamental goals is to be inclusive geographically, but also financially so that also smaller capital can work or like can get compounded in, in decentralized finance. And within these peak times, yeah, transactions below a certain size doesn't make sense anymore. So this is definitely a downside. And uh, I think one sentence sums it the best, basically saying that Ethereum is a victim of its own success. So it got so popular, all this decentralized finance, that transactions got more expensive and therefore outpricing smaller transactions. I would also certainly agree that this opens a space for competition for Ethereum. I mean, we have this huge update for Ethereum. This scalability problem or this high transaction cost problem um, was already known some years ago and is researched upon some years ago. And we had just in December 2020, we had this first step of a huge update, increasing this scalability. But the full update will not happen before 2022, if if 2022. And this opens, I would certainly say, a window for, for competition. Alternative protocols building DeFi currently are Polkadot or Cosmos. But I'm a researcher by heart and I'm also a power user in DeFi. So I encourage competition in, in both fields and open in Ethereum as well as in Polkadot or Cosmos, Yeah, taking a part of this DeFi stack. I will certainly say that high value transactions in decentralized finance will stay in Ethereum, but uh, there is definitely an open window for transactions, which do not need this high security guarantees what Ethereum is providing. They can move to alternative chains. Now with that, we just got a lot of news over the past, well, honestly, I want to say weeks, but the past couple of months just have been full with um, news that we, I think, all would have uh, not believed a few years ago. But just recently, Deutsche Bank announced that they want to get into custody, that they're going to offer this to their clients, exposure to crypto, the safekeeping of their assets. We see, of course, Goldman Sachs, we see BlackRock, we see all the big players getting into it. Now, for many banks, the current credit climate is quite harsh. It's pretty hard for them to still make money. Margins are razor sharp. So we know from talks with many bank executives that everyone knows what's going on in, in blockchain. And they are often even a bit jealous and envious of the players like Bitpanda, players like Coinbase, that can take quite high fees and can take quite really profitable spreads from all the activities in the blockchain trading and on-ramp space. So... Many want to get in, but it's a compliance risk. It's uh, pretty hard to explain this still to uh, yeah, well compliance to the regulators for the big credit institutions. What's your view on this topic where it's clear that they see DeFi, they see that there's actual money to be made, but it's pretty hard to get in. What do you think would be the triggers for them to really get engaged, not just on the custody side? One part of DeFi in a broader view is Bitcoin itself. 
Bitcoin itself is an excellent collateral for any kinds of, of actions you can do on decentralized finance. And we saw 2020 and just like in the last one and a half months that announcements and strategic partnerships for the Bitcoin case have been increasing. So Tesla just recently bought, Twitter is taking a look into it. Square bought Bitcoin on their asset sheet as, as treasury. So I think we definitely have to see Bitcoin here as a front runner for institutional adoption. Also because Bitcoin itself is a finished product. In, in my opinion, and 2020 proved and 2021 will prove that there is no excuse anymore to not take a look into Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a finished product. And not every, every company or like not every government or not every country needs it, but there is no excuse in not taking a look anymore. Ethereum on the other side, and then with this whole DeFi ecosystem, which just needs more yeah, programmability, which Ethereum delivers, is, let's say, a open fintech platform in the making. So yeah, we just discussed about ETH 2.0, so this upgrade of Ethereum and also competitors like Polkadot and Cosmos. So this idea of having an open financial technology platform, which is broader than Bitcoin itself, is in the making. And I think before we will see huge institutional interest, or not interest, interest is there for sure, but huge institutional um, investments or like adoption, it might take for Ethereum one or two more years or three years because 2020 or like in the last two to three months, we just brought this Bitcoin idea to uh, institutional investors. So due to the added complexity, it will take more, but certainly it will be super interesting three, four years to come. So eventually we'll also have institutional yeah, investors and companies being involved in this crypto lending, staking and, and these other products. And I mean, you impressively lined out using the Tesla example what additional functionality you can get with using DeFi services. We talked about the yields. So a lot of opportunities. And I personally think what's happening in this space is looking back at my own history for the last 20 years, being in the technology field I've ever seen is in any other, other space. So huge opportunities. But if I'm an investor, I always have to balance yield or return and risk. And you mentioned it already earlier there are certain risks with DeFi, which justify a certain premium for interest rates. That was your line of argumentation. Can you line out the key or major risks you see in adopting DeFi services from an investor's point of view, from maybe from an in individual investor's point of view? Yes, I think technological risks, they exist because it's all nascent technology. But DeFi itself is an open fintech platform. So building as an institution an adapter or like an API to this open platform is achievable or, or possible. I think what we are rather dealing with on Bitcoin, but also on DeFi is regulatory risks. So it's not only that the assets are volatile, but also that institutions or institutions I talk to don't really know how to do the back office work for such a asset class or like for such an ecosystem. So they don't know how to store crypto assets in DeFi. They don't know how to account yield farmed or like yield achieved, re uh, received in DeFi um, or liquidity provided. So this 
regulatory uncertainty is, and then in the end, a risk is definitely one of the main uh, things why I think institutionals are having a harder time to adjust to crypto assets or Bitcoin and DeFi in particular. Lastly, we have seen economic risks. So the markets itself are pretty volatile, as, as often heard in, in the public news. But a lot of these products in decentralized finance are over collateralized, meaning actually behind any loan or behind any market making, there's always a lot of value in collateral. And this was also the, the huge number we just kited, um, this 30 billion asset under management or total value locked. This is some form of collateral. And Bitcoin is also a very nice asset of collateral, which should dampen the um, economic risk of these volatile markets. What I also want to highlight is that I mentioned technical risks, I mentioned which are medium, I mentioned high regulatory risks and medium economic risks. But I think the super interesting thing is what risks does one has not? And this is uh, counterparty risks. So uh, DeFi itself is a peer-to-peer -peer market. And within this peer-to-peer -peer market, you don't have any counterparty risk because the counterparty is, uh, yeah, is not not necessary in a blockchain-based financial system. Uh, that, that's interesting. So we have technology risk, we have economic risk, we have regulatory risk, and it's somehow partially outbalanced by no counterparty risk. If we think about risk, I also think about how to mitigate these risks. And let's take the, the staking product as an example, or lending, whatever you want to choose. Can you briefly elaborate how the technological, economic, or regulatory risk can be mitigated by investors or how you do it yourself as an individual investor? Yes. So the good news is the regulatory risk hopefully will be addressed over time. So this is, I think, just a, a form of yeah, discussions with the yeah, local uh, jurisdictions and also just a knowledge gap within the market. And the... Other good news is the economic and the technical risks actually can already be hedged today. So this is a huge part of innovation, which you can do a podcast on, on its own. So for technical risk, you already have technical insurance. This weekend, we just had an incident where there was a, a hack, a technical exploit, and there are now discussions about the size and the amount of the payouts of the claims. So insurance already exists in DeFi because it's such an as lending is an important part, insurance is also an important part in this DeFi financial ecosystem. And it's the same for economic risk. You can, um, within DeFi, hedge economic risk with all kinds of derivatives, futures and options already available. Yes, you have to think about liquidity and so on, but uh, practically they, they are available and used already. And I, I expect that they are even more used in 2021 when investing and hedging and insuring against risks get more more attention. Great. That's, that gives us confidence and all other investors and our listeners as well. And since we are now coming closer to the end of this uh, interview, we want to ask you a question where I think all our listeners, they are really, really waiting for this input from an expert uh, like you are in DeFi. What are the upcoming DeFi projects you have on your watch list? What are the hottest ones you are currently seeing in the space? Yeah, so I, <laughs> super interesting questions and always a, a question to ask among podcasters. 
Currently, there is a lot of innovation, a lot of experimentation happening. That's for sure. I think also that we have the speculative aspects in, in crypto. So people also betting on upside, of course, because it is so nascent. So for now, I think the trading use case, swapping asset A to B is still hot. And we have prime examples like Uniswap or like SushiSwap, which are already mature in relative terms. But uh, a very hot project, which I'm currently following out of interest and also out of research is Rune. Rune is a cross-chain exchange. As we said, that Ethereum currently is an upgrade and Polkadot or Cosmos or Bitcoin are competitors. There are ideas to cross these two blockchain systems, these two blockchain technologies with a bridge. And uh, the bridge uh, could be Rune. And this is definitely some some a super fascinating uh, project because trading itself is, is relevant. Other than that, I'm bullish on the whole ecosystem. So doing research in, in Cosmos, there we have a huge ecosystem, which is called Terra. It's a yeah, blockchain or an application, which is actually the most used in the world because there is a lot of Asian adoption for Terra. Yeah, but I also take a look on Ethereum uh, DeFi ecosystem. For example, that we have upcoming insurance and option protocols, which I just mentioned. Uh, one example is Opin, and the other one is Opium. So tough words, but we can surely add, add some links uh, into the description if necessary. Now, since we are all probably quite bullish here, and of course also invested ourselves, I think it's always pretty good to kind of do a reality check and also ask ourselves, and now, of course, especially our guests, how do you prepare for bear markets, a downswing, a new crypto winter? I don't know, a complete breakdown of DeFi due to well-concerted central bank and regulatory action. Like, how do you hedge against this properly? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, small disclaimer, I think certainly it is a highly innovative and a highly interesting ecosystem but also highly speculative. So the first number one rule is always to just invest what you can digest to lose. This holds also for Bitcoin and Ethereum. But for the beer markets itself, I'm more looking on, I had the pleasure or I had the luck that I was also active in 2017, where we had this last excitement about blockchain. And then 2018, 2019, we had two years of yeah, so-called beer market. And what you see then, is at the end, like now in 2020, you see that good teams and good projects, which have a legit use case, for example, trading, what I just mentioned, they survived the two years and they are now bigger and more used and better than ever. So I'm more looking on these, I think in traditional finance, you call it value investing, where you take a look really on a team level, on a product level, on a protocol level, and then make your decision. Yeah, I think, I think it takes away quite a lot of, let's say, market fears and, and nervosity when you've been through the time of 2018, 2019, and you've seen Bitcoin go down to as low as 3,000 USD. But in the end, you, know, you didn't have options. I mean, some people had, I'm not even sure. But as long as you didn't have options and you just held, everything is pretty good. And as long as you invest with like a 10-year time horizon, of course, it doesn't look that scary if it just goes down for a year or two. Exactly. So, of course, to esteemed listeners, none of this is obviously investment advice. 
We are all heavily biased on this, on these topics, of course. Do your own research. Past uh, performance is, of course, no indicator for future developments. And uh, yeah, these markets are, as Victor said so nicely, quite nascent. And uh, we're all just trying to figure things out as we go. So thanks so much for listening. Victor, thank you so much for being here with us. I think it was uh, an absolute pleasure having you. And you gave some great answers right on the line, as you said, between finance and the technology side. And I think that's incredibly valuable. Pleasure was definitely on my side. I really enjoy deep discussions or, or talking with uh, podcasters because this is, as you said, this is where we are currently. We all have to figure things out and we all have to discuss to build a better financial system. Also, Karl Michael, thank you very much for being my co-host to the night. Uh, as always, enjoy it very much. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Thanks, Victor. It was a big pleasure talking to you. And Victor, that was really great insights. I really enjoyed this 40 minutes. That was great. Perfect. Thanks for joining us. Now, thank you very much for listening. And see you again in the next episode of Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets.